Listener Production. Shares, Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special, yeah, you know it is, Sunday morning mailbag edition. I am Scott Phillips. He is, of course, the illustrious Mr. Andrew Page. G'day, mate. How are you? I'm very good, sir. How are you this uh, fine Sunday morning? Excellent. You know what I've done? I've committed it to memory. Oh, yeah? Private Online Investment Club. Oh, fantastic. I just can't remember what it's called. What's it called? something. (laughs) Strawman.com. Check it out. The cheap jokes are always the best or just the dad jokes that amuse me. One of the two is absolutely true. Check out strawman.com. Also check out fool.com.au, the Motley Fool. Got, got some unnecessary um, uh, encouragement on Twitter with the dad jokes, actually. Yeah, I know. Just... It was that. That is carte blanche. I've got 12 months out of that one. Yeah, I, I, just, I just say, listeners, careful what you ask for. <laughs> exactly. Something Scott jokes. will more, right. more than deliver on. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, speaking of which, we used a, a Greece reference the other week. Did you see that tweet? I did. We talking about electrifying, which I made a joke. And then apparently later in the episode, I said, tell me about it. To which one of our very attentive listeners said, I missed the opportunity for a prime Grease reference. I could have gone with, tell me about it, stud. Channeling <laughs> Olivia Newton-John. I can't really do an ONJ impersonation particularly well, nor do I feel comfortable calling you stud. So I didn't do that. I probably won't do that again. Yeah. A little yeah, bit, okay. a little bit. We'll debrief afterwards. Mate, uh, <laughs> Let's get straight into the questions. We've got a heap, which is always awesome, and I love. A um, couple from Patrick, actually, which I thought uh, we might run with. This is one about ETFs, but thing we don't talk about very often, listed investment companies. And Patrick says, I read Peter Thornhill's book that Andrew recommended on the podcast, which is excellent. Motivated money, it's called, if you're looking for it. Peter talks about the benefits of listed investment companies over ETFs. He says, due to the ability of an LIC to pay out a dividend when it chooses rather than an ETF having to. I didn't really understand the benefit an LIC has over an ETF in this regard and was hoping you could please explain. Love all that you do and the way you gently guide listeners, including me, to think about the way they invest. Cheers from Patrick. It's a good question, mm. mate. Um, yeah. I, I kind of get where Peter Thornhill is coming from in one sense, which is so an ETF is a trust and it's obliged to pass through cash flows and capital gains to the trust recipients, the beneficiaries, which is your eye if we buy units in that ETF. So that's that's what uh, Patrick's referring to, Peter referring to, if that makes sense. Uh, and pa- Peter's saying, look, it's better if a company has the ability to pay dividends only when it chooses to, rather than when it's forced to under those regulations. I don't have a big beef with that view, other than I don't think it's particularly necessary or relevant for my investing or for most people's investing. Um, generally speaking, if you get an ETF, you're looking for the market result. Maybe it's a, uh, you know, a, a, some sort of thematic ETF or a commodity ETF or something. But let's use the the plain vanilla ones that we prefer. Uh, maybe it's you know, I, I mean, I get, you know, you want the market return, and then you want to reinvest that capital in the market to get the compound market return. In theory, if that's why you're buying the ETF, um, LIC with its kind of stock picking plus. Uh, dividend maybe it gets paid maybe it doesn't I, I just feels the, the the LIC layer feels unnecessary to me mate if particularly if you're looking for an ETF that is market tracking by definition if you want to beat the market LIC can do that if you like the fund manager but then it's more like a managed fund than an ETF to my mind uh, and in which mm. case it's not really comparing apples for apples what are your thoughts I mean the LIC is is definitely the way to go if you have a, a huge amount of trust in in the people managing the company and their investment competence and and the strategy that they're pursuing and the rest of it and, yeah. and, and with the added flexibility they've got we we talked last week about capital allocation and how a crucial skill it is and 
you know, in the hands of a really deft operator, um, mm. it may make sense to retain dividends and reinvest that. At other times, it makes sense to pay it out. And that, that discretion can be mm. a, a, a real wonderful advantage. The, the flip side of it is is that, you know, maybe you have a Bernie Madoff or someone, you know, to give a really stark <laughs> example, you know, um, yeah. or at least someone who's, who's not able to sort of beat their index after all the costs and everything have been uh, accounted for. I mean, the good thing about the ETF is it's just – Barring mm-hmm. a very very small um, fee, you're, you're guaranteed to match the market. Yeah. So it, it's the, the technical point I get. The hard part is in saying, well, what are the managers of this listed com- company like, and are they like likely to beat the index? And I think usually with the ETF approach, you just take that approach of, look, mm-hmm. I'm sure they're well they're guaranteed there'll be people out there who'll do really well. There'll also be a lot of people who underperform. In fact, statistically more more, more <laughs> do <laughs> exactly. than don't yeah. once you once you factor in fees. And it's just like, you know what? The average on, on over the long term has tended to be pretty mm-hmm. decent. Mm-hmm. Over the long term, maybe that that's you know pretty reasonable to expect that that will hold true. And I'm happy with that. And then you can you you can you just opt out of of taking that extra risk in trying to chase two or three percent. I mean, there's still there's still worth and temptation in doing that because if we've said before, if if people do manage to get even what seems to be a small amount of outperformance mm, yeah. compounded over a very long time, that that can really add up. But yeah. do you sort of take the bird in the hand of the guaranteed sort of average or or the two in the bush of the potential for more? And that's that's a that's a harder decision. I think that's right. I think an LIC is either an ETF. Um, uh, analog, in other words, you're, you're trying to get a whole market return. And LICs came about when there were no ETFs, right? So ETFs, I think if, if you're trying to get the market return, ETF beats an LIC. Mm. If you want to beat the market, then LIC should be considered along with managed funds, along with stock picking and everything else. But then you should have to make that choice. I don't think anymore there's a justifiable case for a market matching LIC versus the ETF, mm. in which case you are, as you say, looking for outperformance primarily. And which you either get or you don't, but that's then not a question of is it an, is it a market matching ETF or an active LAC? They're very different things, and it's almost not about a structure at that point. It's a matter of can you beat the market? Yep, there's a good example out there um, in Argo Investments, mm. which is a very long-standing, I believe, South Australian Adelaide-based um, listed investment company mm. who pretty much track the big end of town yeah. and. Uh, when I put that up on a chart and I compare that to VAS, the Vanguard, uh, I believe it's the ASX 200. 300, the uh, VAS. Yep. Okay, yeah, there you go. Um, so very, very, very similar. Over a 10-year period, the I can't even see because one of the figures is over the others. You literally a percent, <laughs> yeah, exactly. a percent difference. Interestingly yeah. enough, there was a big period between... 2013, 2016, where where uh, Vanguard underperformed the LIC, yep. Yep. and then obviously outperformed. So it's kind of you know for some of these things it's much a muchness, um, uh, but you know they're they're both they're both pretty good options. I guess I I would just err towards just taking the the I hate to use the word but guarantee of mm-hmm. of the ETF yep. at least guarantee in the sense that it's guaranteed to be the average. If you're considering the two, if you want if you want the market return, get the market return. If you want someone to go and pick stocks for you, then do that. But they're not yep. they're not and they're not the same thing in my view, at least most of the part. Yeah. Mate, yep. um, another one Patrick follows up with saying, I'm hoping you wouldn't mind sharing a personal answer. How much do you guys allocate to your emergency fund? He says not in dollars, but in how long you wouldn't need to work. I'm guessing Scott's situation can take into account long service leave and other forms of leave, whereas the chief cook and bottle washer, Andrew, <laughs> would have to pay all his own leave. 
The reason I ask is that I too enjoy investing almost as much as you guys, but I've come to appreciate that the most important things in my life need to be accounted for. For example, what happens if my kids get very sick, my partner or I lose my jobs, etc. It reminded me of when you guys said you'd never play Russian roulette despite the asymmetric upside or bet your house well, at least Scott said this, because the stakes were too high. So I appreciate if you could share this information. Patrick. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm in a bit of a different situation mm. running my own business. You know, we've only been a paid business, in fact, for 18 months or so. Yeah, a multi-million um, dollar bottom line profit. I guess you've got so much money coming in. It's hard to, uh... <laughs> well, it's just, it's different, you know. <laughs> it is different, yeah. As, as listeners know, I, I rent... Um, you know, banks don't even look at me because of, <laughs> of my current situation, and they certainly don't take notice of my Bitcoin holdings. So it's sort of, you know, I'm in a I'm in a bit of a different situation. So I do hold more cash than I otherwise would if I had the security and tenure of a of a long term um, employment contract. Mm -hmm. I think I would run very lean on the cash, and if God forbid something horrible were to happen, <laughs> there yeah. is the, the assets I hold are very liquid in the sense that I can turn them to cash very well. Now, it might suck if I'm forced to do that during a period of dislocation and a bear market, but I wouldn't need to sell the lot. Yeah. And it's it's just, it's it's there if I need it. That's, I mean, that's one of the great advantages of a share as opposed to a house, which takes ages to sell. And you can't you can't just sell the kitchen or the bathroom. It's the whole damn <laughs> thing. Right. I can cut, sell 3% of, yeah, right. 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 of my portfolio and, you know, pay 50 bucks in brokerage. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's very, and get my money in two days, right? So it's, yeah. it, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm being a little bit cautious here because it, it really does depend on the personal mm. situation. Yeah. Um. But yeah, that's that's how I I look at things. Um, yep. I, at the moment, I don't know. I guess I, I haven't looked at it for a while, but I I would probably say you add it all up. There's probably at least fifteen percent in cash for me at the moment. Mm. Mm. It's not it's not anything to do with market timing or waiting for this or that or you know it's just the, the current personal circumstances. What you have? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, we probably have got. I haven't done the maths in a while. We've probably got about six months of basic living expenses in cash. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't consider that part of my portfolio. So we have a bank high return, high interest savings account. And there's a chunk of cash in there. It is by definition opportunity cost. One of your favorites, Andrew, because we could mm -hmm. invest it and make a return. So, so it is part of the portfolio, I guess, in an absolute sense. But then yep. so is my house and then so is my car. And then I, I mean, everything at some point is part of the portfolio or it's not. Um, I don't consider it's, it's not part of my investable cash. We don't we don't invest that money ever. Um, not that it doesn't go up and down where we spend money on things, but we don't, you know, it's, it's just a chunk of change over there. Uh, I have a separate account from my investing where our sa investment savings go in and where our dividends go into and we invest out of. So about six, about six months of, of, relatively bare bones expenses at the end of that mm -hmm. six months if we needed it we probably have to do something different um i mean you mentioned uh, you know again the chance that both my wife and i lose our jobs at the same time is you know i mean touch wood but you know like so it's it's six months of expenses if, if we had to use it all it's probably more than it needs to be but to your point patrick i think to exactly to your point um i am uh uh, I'm very, very much, um, you know, happy to say that's more important to me. The, I can sleep at night. My wife can sleep at night. Uh, we don't feel like there's a there's a time at which we'd be under some pressure, and so that was just that's enough for us, and that's just the way we choose to do it. We could, uh, to your point, mate, just sell our shares. Uh, we've talked about, for example, saving up for the next car we buy, and at some point, you know, we want to try and buy it for cash rather than rather than borrow. Now, hopefully, it's a long way away. Our cars are. 
uh, five and seven years old at the moment. So, you know, hopefully it's a while to Time, time to for a new Porsche, them. is it? Exactly, mate. Well, fourth Porsche, exactly. No, I mean, yeah, and that's the thing. We bought one that was used, one was a de- X-Demo. We hope to hold them both for until they're at least 10 years old plus. But at some point you say, okay, well, let's start putting some money away. And we have mm-hmm. to ask the question for ourselves, do you put the money away now and save it and then have it in cash? Or do you simply say, okay, well, at some point we need to replace the car. We will just sell some shares at that point, which we've used to invest in the meantime. And that's probably the approach we'll take. We'll probably sell some shares at that point and say, okay, done. We'll take that money out. Uh, obviously, at a time of our choosing, hopefully, unless the cars <laughs> literally keel over. And that, again, to your point about risk, you know, maybe it's the worst time in the market when the when the Hilux dies. Um, mm. But if it goes for another 15 years, then we're then we're sweet. So we'll probably keep the money in the market from from that perspective. I got to tell you a story. When we last bought our car five years ago, uh, it was a Hyundai Santa Fe, so nothing mm. nothing fancy. But we'd long recognised we needed the new car because of the jalopy we were driving, <laughs> and so we saved up some money and we and we bought it. Mm. But the experience was so bizarre to me because the amount of pushback I got in buying cash, right, was was, was so strong, and I I couldn't work. I was mm. like, mate, who gives us stuff? I'm I'm actually there's no credit risk here. I'm just what are you? Yep. I'm paying for it. I didn't <laughs> didn't didn't twig until afterwards that you know the way that mm-hmm. the automotive industry works is that basically cars are sold at cost and it's all the ex- yep. it's all the yeah, elect- yeah, it's all yeah. the extras and the financing where the where the revenue comes from. Yeah. But anyway, just just a sign of the times and the society that we that we live in. I, I thought it was really bizarre. Um, the what point I wanted to make off the back of this is we've kind of spoken from a, a position, I think of of pretty. Of privilege, yeah, hard, yeah. hard work and and yep. grind as well. But you know, we're, also old, we're, fair, we're both in our late forties. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> we're both in our late forties. We've always been tight as buggery, and we've always <laughs> we've always sort of <laughs> saved money. When you when you're getting going, it's it's much more difficult, yep. and 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 other people have had a harder trot of life. And we know mm-hmm. from the stats that it's some, I can't remember the exact number, but some worryingly high percentage of people are paycheck to paycheck, mm-hmm. and Stupidly high. um. Yep. Stupidly high, and you know, some, sometimes that's just like not being sensible. Other times it's just misfortune. So mm. not making a judgment on it, but just that's just the reality of it. Mm. But many of people in, in that situation, like all of us, will want to sort of better their financial future and, and consider investing. And that's and I and I champion that move. I think I think it's a great move. In that circumstance, though, it probably pays to save up a bit of uh, an amount, as the listener says, have a bit of a buffer in cash. Mm. And or, or or at least just make sure that money that you are putting aside, you definitely don't need <laughs> exactly, for at least yeah. a couple of years because yep, it's yep. you know the longer you invest, the lower the risk is. Um, so if you think, oh, I just want to put it, I'm I'm going to buy it. I'm trying to save up for a deposit on a house. I'll put it in the market for a year. That's that's as much as I'm an don't advocate for share market investing. That's insane. <laughs> don't do that because <laughs> anything could happen. I mean, look at Correct. the last year, right? Even mm-hmm. though it's a great long term move, it's a pretty reckless short term move. Yeah. So it, it is always worth. I'm look again each to their own. But from mm-hmm. my point of view, it is always worth having a little bit of a rainy day fund. Um, you know, just just for the just for the unforeseen, because you you never want to be in a situation to be a forced sell. Forced sellers are usually forced at the worst possible time, and you just don't want to. You want to avoid that if you can. Hundred percent, um, mate. Patrick, a third question, which he actually asked a while ago. He said, uh, "Can you ask some of my old questions now?" So I'm sorry, Patrick, we missed this question on the way through. Actually, the other way around. The other ones were the old ones. This is the new one. Um, he just says, uh, "I recently enjoyed the episode of the Good Oil." I appreciate you mentioned that, Patrick. If you haven't yet subscribed to the Good Oil, ho- shameless plug. Please do look up the Good Oil with Scott Phillips. Um, I've said before, I don't love self-referencing myself, but that's what the boffins at SCA made me put on it because there were other podcasts called The Good Oil. So it's called The Good Oil with Scott Phillips with the CEO of Camplify, says Patrick. In the episode, the gentleman said that one of the reasons he took the company public 
was because he found raising money difficult in the private markets and the private investment firms did not see enough scale in the business. This made me think, well, I love this question. This made me think more generally about companies transitioning to the public markets. I'd appreciate your thoughts on the following. If private investors who can scrutinize numbers and the business quite thoroughly are not willing to invest in a company, is there some disjuncture or issue that companies can get this money from the public? I know this is a big generalization as many public companies have done very well based on fundamentals, but I'd appreciate your thoughts and even if you have an example to share of where the IPO process has been positive or negative for retail, in brackets, hello, Andrew, shareholders. <laughs> Thanks, Patrick. Uh, there you go, Patrick. You're up to date now, mate. Um, thank you for being patient with me, by the way. There were a couple of old questions there from Patrick. Um, I really like this question too, mate, yeah, because- great. You know, I, I I had an old old I'm old right as as are you and uh, not buying from Kerry Packer was always a very good investment approach. Right, if Packer's selling, <laughs> you don't want to be buying because Packer's no right. slouch. Uh, mind you, if Alan Bond's selling, you probably want to be buying as Kerry Packer did. So there's there's different there's different billionaires with different uh, different amounts of credibility. But if private equity's selling, and kind of to, to Patrick's broader comment, uh, or not willing to invest, even even the other side of that. Are, are we uh, are we the guys? Are we the mugs at the end of the line saying, "Well, I guess you can have my money then," uh, or is there some different metric, different process, different set of circumstances being played out? You, you can be pretty cynical with this stuff, and there's heaps of examples <laughs> Some, where you just you, you, you call you know the you know re- retail is is exit liquidity is uh-huh. is the technical way of saying it. Just sort of like you know you're you're my payday. <laughs> I'm, I'm cashing in, you take the shares. I'm, I feel as though I'm getting the better deal. So there's definitely that that goes on 100%. I guess with a couple of interesting observations, private equity gets a much better reputation than it deserves. They, they, they make dumb investments all the time. So whether they are or aren't doing something isn't always um, a, a great sign. Um, uh, so, you know, bear, bear that in mind. Yeah. Um, uh, I've seen, particularly in the last couple of years, particularly in sort of startup land, there were some deals that I was aware of that were just getting, again, by supposed <laughs> experts, yeah. whiz-bang VCs, private equity, angel investors, whatever, just buying, frankly, pitch decks. Mm-hmm. A young kid with a bit of bit of a website or app that had a great idea that's going to take over the world and next thing you know, they're valued at $5 million without a cent of proven revenue. And you just think, how the hell is that possible? We we look back on it now and laugh, but for the longest time, that was just was pulling my hair out. Like, how is this, how is this uh, even even possible? And I'm I'm sure while it's never too late for some of these things to turn around, a bunch of those investors got dusted. Again, the so-called yeah. smart money. So, you know, I, I think as a, as a business owner, I would- I would only ever list on the market or in fact sell out to VC for, for one of two reasons. One, I just wanted out and I wanted I wanted to sort of cash in. Or two, and I think this is where we, we've got to give a lot of companies credit, is that they they just you need it, it takes money to make money, is the old mm. saying. And it's mm. really, really, true. really true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you've got a great little business, that's fine. If you want to take it to the next level, you just need growth. A growth investments in that, whether that's mm. extra salespeople, a little bit more R&D, expanding your manufacturing capacity. It's money spent now with the expectation of it coming in later. And mm. the markets can be a great way to do that. I mean, the flip side of listing on the market, I guess a bit of prestige and easier access to capital. The flip side is you've got a bunch of analysts and brokers always knocking on your door asking for the latest update and figures. You've got a share price to worry about that's quoted every minute of every trading day. You know, it's sort of, it's a huge, the, the reporting requirements, it's a huge 
regulatory and, and bureaucratic sort of nightmares that sort of to mm. sort of go through. Mm. But there's a lot of legitimacy in doing it. And that, frankly, is your job as an investor is, is am I getting the, the better part uh, of this deal? Yeah. And um, yeah, <laughs> be careful out there because, as we say, there's, there's, there's definitely people just looking to who, – who are very obviously said, implicitly kind of said that I prefer the cash to the shares. Mm. Yeah, I, um, I think that, that, that's right. There's two, there's two kind of thoughts there, right? It's like why not private equity but also why – the founder is selling or why is the founder selling mm. we know sometimes it's for growth capital sometimes an exit as you rightly say mate um maybe it's always eventually exit liquidity by definition but i guess that's also true of any company you start right you're mm. either going to sell straw man for a squillion dollars or leave it for the kids uh but either way you know at some point you're not going to own the business um yep. it's probably just, you know and and you might have bought in more money to grow the business or you might keep it yourself there's a whole lot of things you could or should do or would do um mm. for a whole lot of different reasons in terms of i think I mean, look, there's some, there's some great examples of businesses. Of, you know, Meyer and, and Dick Smith are two that came out of private equity and went to zero, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're very, very good, close enough to zero. Very good ex- examples of that. There's others that have come out of private equity and done spectacularly well. Class is mm-hmm. one business that just flew uh, yeah. out, out of the blocks when it was listed. Um, I'm trying to remember if I can think of any others, mate. I mean, there's plenty. I mean, uh, Woolworths it was, was sold out of private equity at $2-ish, I think, back when it was floated oh, and it got yeah, the $40 right. in reasonably quick time. So there's yeah. plenty of opportunity. There's plenty of plenty of examples um so look firstly be a little not cynical but be skeptical be mindful be careful when it's probably selling ask yourself why uh virgin australia is about to come back on the asx i dare say it'll come back on the don't ASX. Touch a lot it. of debt not advice well, don't touch almost it. <laughs> almost certainly right but they'll sell it at a great time they'll do a nice song and dance who doesn't want to own an airline me but most most other people do or think they do um for, for so me 400 times shame on you <laughs> you know <laughs> different buffett's done that um so you know but but they'll they'll list it at a time of their choosing and you know you're entitled to take some of that now could Woolworths sellers back in 1990 whatever it was have held on for the game themselves yeah should they off yeah in hindsight yes absolutely were the Maya private equity sellers you know very I'll say fortunate in quotes uh, to have sold out at a really good price that it never ever ever got back to yes absolutely did they get one over retail investors I think arguably yes they made a very very compelling case people chose to pay the money they didn't, they didn't make anyone ta- pay that, that that share price but when they did uh, you know that is the impact so you mm. I don't think you can realistically um, blame them for doing what they do but know who's selling right and just be really mindful every sale by the way is a transaction between you who thinks it's worth something and me who thinks it's worth something else if I'm selling and you're mm. buying you think it's worth more than I do if I'm buying and you're selling, I think it's worth more than you do. That's always the case. Mm. But as I said, just uh, just just be very very mindful that you know private equity selling because they think they can get a maximum possible price. Yeah. Um, one that- last one, one last one quick before I jump in, mate, is um, often people have different expectations of returns. So private when private equity sell, yep. for example, they're often selling because they want to own something for two or three years. They've got limited term funding normally from investors. They want to return in you know two, three, four, five years, and their their entire intent is buy it, fix it, sell it off. Right? Every every re- renovator's delight. Right? You buy that's the house, the you paint it, you renovate it, you sell it, and that's yeah, exactly. Fix her up. Are you a, yep. are you a mad are you mad for buying the renovated house? Not necessarily. You just know you're buying a renovated house. Someone else put the blood, sweat, and tears, took the risk, and they get a return for that, and you get a nice house ready to ready to live in. Now, maybe it's full of termites, a la Meyer or Dick Smith. Maybe it's Woolworths, and you go, wow, that was amazing. They, it was great. I'm glad they did it up, but then they sold it to me, and I got to get all the benefit from that. Fantastic. I've done really, really well. Um, so I wouldn't... 
The other thing, by the way, is the smart money thing. Sorry, mate, I was going to make my last one. This is my new last yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, please. The, the smart money thing is important, right? We kind of assume that private equity must be smarter than us. Therefore, if they're not buying, we shouldn't, or vice versa. And that's, I'm not going to add any more detail in terms of the stuff I've just described because it applies exactly the same. Just don't believe for a second that there's all of a sudden these, these, these super smart, super connected, super, you know, whatever, people over there who are only the ones who can, who can choose good businesses or make good money. Campify mm. might fly or it might crash. And mm. if it flies, then private equity missed a trick. If it crashes, they've, they've saved their investors some money. But there'll be other businesses that have exactly opposite outcomes. Um, so don't 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 get tricked into believing that somehow the smart guys uh, have necessarily any more insight than you do. They have the ability, by the way, to buy a whole company and to to, to fix it up and to get a good return. I would speculate. I can't speak for Justin Hales from Camplify, but I would speculate. Private equity said we don't see enough of a return here between us buying it and going public. Mm. Not not that they can't make any money. Just they want to they want to buy something. You know you want to buy Facebook when it's small because you can see that eventually it's going to serve two billion people. Mm. If you look at Camplify and say I'm not sure or I don't know or I don't think the market will pay more for this because that's all they care about. What's their exit price? Then they may have they may have avoided investing in it. I mean it's just it's it's our usual rambly annoying answer of it depends, <laughs> but it depends, doesn't it? And this is mm-hmm. this is where I think too too many investors I know they just have these heuristics that they treat as hard and fast, like i.e. never buy a roll up, never you know, and then you've got Kelly Partners Group, which has just been phenomenally successful. Mm-hmm. You've got ones that say never buy something out of private equity hands, and you've just given some examples of things that have worked out wonderfully well. Mm-hmm. You know, same as like when the founders selling down. I mean, often it's probably the best thing for the company. If you've, you've there's a lot of examples of people who have been great at starting a business and running a small business, but have no skill. In, in running a, a much larger business. Look at Rod Jury mm, from, mm. from Zero, amazing work that he did there, <laughs> but eventually handed it over. It's just, and mm. you've got to imagine too, it feels like an overnight success, these things that just sort of land on the market there, but some, some poor bugger has been like slaving away <laughs> yeah, for 15, yeah. 20 years of their life, exactly. putting every ounce of capital and blood, sweat and tears yeah. out. And I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not the kind of person who goes, oh, if they're out, then it must be terrible and they correct, see all correct. this. It, it's not true. It's just not true. Mm-hmm. And then there's even times where a lot of people will want to stay on and, and absolutely stay on and, and retain a huge part of their their wealth in it. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like, well, I've now got 99% of my wealth in it. <laughs> Do I not believe if I roll yeah. that back to 80% and maybe, maybe enjoy some of the spoils of the success correct. I've worked so hard for? So it's... You know, you've got to look at each each case individually. But as you said at the start, there, it, it's health. It's good to have a healthy degree of skepticism. I, I think mm. just don't be just don't be cynical. Yeah, yes, that, I think that, and that's always the, the distinction I try and make. Mate, uh, one from Willow Vino is his Instagram handle, who just simply says, "Morning, mate. Have you guys covered CDIs in the pod? I'm not sure we have. But if we have, we probably haven't done it in quite a while. So I'm just going to ask you on behalf of Willow, Andrew, what is a CDI? Uh, chess depository instrument, I believe, is what what the acronym stands oh, for. Look at that it's on fire. Is that right? I so, an instrument or um, what's that thing I was thinking? Yeah, close enough. Anyway, yes. <laughs> it, it's it's a uh, you, you'll have these for companies that the primary listing is on an overseas market. So it'll it'll be over in New York or something like that. Mm-hmm. I you're going to probably be able to know the the exact mechanics of of how it works but certain amounts of shares are sort of held somewhere and you've Mm -hmm. got you actually own an instrument that gives you exposure to that but not directly to the underlying sort of it's sort of a roundabout way to get to buy shares in a foreign listed company Mm -hmm. 
Yep. Um, okay. So look, yeah, you should know. I thought it was just supposed to be interest, but the interest or instrument, I don't know which one it is. Okay. Doesn't really matter. Okay. Um, either way, yeah. Look, so so you can have shares that are listed on two different exchanges, and they're literally separate bunches of shares. You can have, uh, you know, you could you can have half your shares listed on the ASX and half on the London Stock Exchange, for example. And that's just messy and painful and difficult. No one does it anymore. Instead, they use these chest depository instruments or, or interest, depending on which one it is. We don't know yet. Uh, to I could Google. To, yeah, exactly. To uh, you know, to represent a proportion of those shares. So instead of having to get up in the middle of the night and buy shares in, ResMed's a great example. It's a US listed company primarily. It's primary listing. It's main listing is in the US. And in Australia, you buy ResMed CDIs or chest depository whatever's. Instru- uh, interests. Interests, there we go. Chest depository interests. Yeah. Uh, and you, uh, you you buy those and, and someone holds those actual ResMed shares in trust for you. Basically, it's taking the admin hassle out of US dollars, US bank account, US you know uh, brokerage, all that kind of stuff. Um there's nothing meaningfully good or bad about them in and of themselves. Uh, it's a very, very simple paper translation. There's no, uh, there's no real downside to them as an instrument. What you should, though, be understanding clearly is what is the primary exchange and how does that primary exchange uh, or, or how well do you trust that primary exchange? Simple example, um, if I could buy shares in Page Incorporated that has primary listing in Iraq and had some ASX CDIs, the CDIs themselves aren't a problem, but I might say, hey, how much do I know about the Iraqi regulatory system and accounting rules and exchange listing rules and disclosure rules and that kind of stuff? And if the answer is not much, then the CDIs themselves are fine as an instrument, but the underlying shares may not be the quality I think they are. Mm. Uh, if, if Page Investments was listed on the New York Stock Exchange, then I still should read the, the appropriate detail, but I can be reasonably assured that the regulatory uh, oversight is very, very good. It's, it's effectively just buying Page International shares or incorporated shares on, on the New York Stock Exchange. It just makes it easier because you get to do it in trading, Australian trading hours and Australian dollars on the ASX using your standard brokerage account, which is kind of a cool thing to be able to do. Uh, maybe the most, I'm not sure it's the most owned, but the most recent one of note is Block. Uh, when when Block used yeah. to be called Square bought Afterpay, part of the deal was we will let you keep those. We will convert your Afterpay shares to Block share or Block CDIs. Sorry to be really clear, and we'll trade those CDIs on the ASX. And so that, that's kind of what happened. So if you look up Block, it's SQ two, I think, is the code um, on the ASX. You'll see the Block CDIs, and that's that's exactly all they are. You get a proportional interest. I will say quickly, just one quick one, mate, for people who are looking this up. A CDI isn't necessarily a one for one share. And I can't remember if it's ResMed or something else. It might be ResMed. One of them is actually a 10 for one or a one for 10. So uh, I think if it is ResMed, effectively 10 CDIs right. is the yep. equivalent of one share in the US. So don't look at the share price and go, wow, a $30 CDI and a $300 share, I'm getting a massive discount. Um, CDIs don't have to be one for one. And in the case of Australia, because the per share prices of Australian shares tend to be much lower than the US, um, Google's in the hundreds, Facebook's in the hundreds, and that you've got, you know, Woolies is 38 and, you know, there's some in the hundreds, CSL and CBA, but you know what mm-hmm. I mean? The average price is lower. So if you do, you know, if you're an American company with a $1,000 share price, you're probably going to do a 50 for one CDI. So you have a $2 share price, which just seems to Australians to be more, to be better value. Of course, we all know it's not, uh, but just so you know, there might be some changes there. So don't get, don't get freaked out or super impressed if you see a difference in those numbers. Yeah. The key thing is here is just, it, it's much more convenient. And yeah. it's important to remember too, I've, I'm going to sound knowledgeable here, but I'm cheating. I, I just looked it up while you were talking. <laughs> um, you you will not get voting rights and That's those kinds of things, but you do get all other benefits of it. And you are even protected by the National Guarantee Fund. So it's 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 not 
um, there's not a huge amount of risk that is there. You just say, and you can convert to the underlying by requesting that from the nominee, the person who yes. the, the group that's that's running it as well. So it's just a way of saying I'm actually, as far as the tax man is concerned, you've been you've been buying and selling Australian shares, even though the beneficial ownership confer is, is conferred on a, on a foreign entity. Yep. And so, yeah, if you like the company, yeah. Resmed's a great example, by the way. What mm. a great mm. company. That is mm. just, that has been such, uh, for those that don't know, sleep apnea, uh, mm-hmm. device manufacturer, um, just just been an incredible long-term performer. And mm. and had you held CDOs, you would have done very well. Yeah. Um, I, yes, I think that's, yes. I, I just want to say quickly, when you say the, the, the ASX thinks you're, or considers you own, own an Australian asset, there's nothing dodgy or no one's trying to do anything clever. This is one of those things where, you know, someone's created the structure to get a fee or whatever. This is literally just a a way of owning a proportional ownership. So yep. there are other things. Uh, investment banks every now and again create um, Australian, you know, kind of ASX listed derivatives of US companies. Um, there's been two goes at that in the last 10 or 15 years, I think. Uh, they both folded because there wasn't enough Australian public interest in them. Uh, that And by the way, at that point, one the, the first one that was done, the deal was, it was one for one tra- uh, comparison, but the fund manager or the fund creator got to keep half the dividends that were paid. <laughs> and that was kind of in the fine print. You know, no one's doing anything necessarily dodgy, but it's not great. Um, so just, just be mindful, those sort of things. Just uh, CDI is completely plain vanilla, but I just want to let our listeners know that doesn't always mean you're always going to get the same approach with any any kind of instrument or, or listing or something else that's that's kind of sounds similar. So just make sure you're getting what you're getting what you're getting. Does that make sense? Yep. 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 Right, cool. In fact, I've just been reading here, They the um, the issuer receives no fees from investors. So I guess the company would just do there it because go. they want a, a bigger pool of investors and to make it easier for foreign foreign investors. Correct. I think that's I think that's a really good way to describe it. That being said, I'm also not sure. Yeah, they do it because they feel like they should in some cases. Uh, you know, yep. Block did it to make the afterpay deal work because they you know yes. they want to sweeten the deal for Australian investors who got to stay invested if they wanted to. Block never would have than- done it without that. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And that's, yeah. so that, that's you know, it, it's you, and it's not even bad they did it, but you know, they're not they're not doing it because they for their purposes, other than they're trying to get it across across the line in a in a an attractive way and kind of try and make it try and make it possible. Yep. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Make one from Jason who's uh, Scott, maybe one for the podcast. My question is when buying individual stocks. What's typically the amount, a minimum amount of cash someone should put in? I understand as a general rule, brokerage being under 1% ideally, but are there any ideas on minimal amounts, e.g. $2,500 invested on a $150 stock or better off with a larger amount, say $5,000? Or is it efficient, in quotes, to use smaller amounts instead and buying broad-based ETFs as I'm currently doing? Not financial advice, he says, thank you, but I'm wondering about the minimal amount one should invest with individual stocks over time. That's from Jason. It's a good question, mate, because yeah. the answer is going to be it depends. But but what do you reckon Jason <laughs> should be considering? I, I think technically there's no – you could buy one share if you wanted to. Most brokers won't bother, though, and they won't offer that to, to again, retail clients because it's just not worth anyone's interest. So yeah. they usually – I know when I was at Comsec years and years and years ago, it was a $500 minimum order, mm-hmm. yep. and the minimum brokerage at that point was about 20 bucks. So it's actually, in terms of a percentage term, it was it was quite a bit. You know, you you needed yeah. you needed if you were going to buy and sell, well, that's forty dollars. So it's almost ten percent increase just to break even after mm. brokerage costs. 
Now, if you're buying $5,000 worth, you're still paying 20 bucks in brokerage, mm. um, but it's a much smaller, the shares don't need to move nearly as much before you're, you're in break, break even territory. So there is a point, I think, for very small amounts where it doesn't make sense, where it probably is best to save up until you've got a, a little bit more of a meaningful amount, just so the brokerage doesn't ruin you. The good thing is that there's a lot, and we've talked about this before, I guess um, counterintuitively enough, our mm. stance is that on balance, these ultra low brokerage rates aren't good, mm-hmm. which sounds strange, I think, when you hear it the first yeah. time, only because yeah. it, 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 Sometimes it's good to have a bit of friction. You know, I'm friction. all for low cost. Friction but, but- is so underestimated, both in, yeah. both in good and bad ways. Yes, is massively, massively underestimated. I just thought it's, uh, if it, I if it was a hundred dollars per trade, and that was the lowest you could get. Yep. I I don't know if it'd be a terrible thing. To, purely, be, hear me out. Purely because of the behavioural <laughs> impact it will have. Uh-huh. It will. 100%. It will. Yep. It will. It will help that. But. But assuming that we're all adults and we're sensible and we're not going to be seduced <laughs> by the prospects of free trades and the rest of it, mm-hmm. what the great thing about is zero, if they have in the US and, and some pretty low brokerage um, options that are available in Australia, like five bucks and stuff, even for te- um, chess-sponsored brokers. And by the way, ch- chase them out. They're, they're, you want to mm-hmm. pay as little as you can. Yep. But then that 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 does mean that you can put in 500 bucks or you know the small, relatively small amounts without having to worry about the, the brokerage sort of um, – taking taking any upside yeah i like it i i'm 100 with you mate i'm not sure 100 bucks is the right price but i'm absolutely sure that there are there is much more damage being done with five dollar brokerage than was being done with 50 dollar brokerage now yeah. there's also a whole lot fewer people who can or think they can afford to invest because again those sticker prices like the share prices per share mm. right we just talked mm. about a lot of people said oh, i can't afford brokerage i'm not going to invest it's not for me it's only for the big end of town mm. lower brokerage i can afford that therefore i'll invest so mm. there are behavioral impacts in both directions if it was up to me mate i would make buying free and selling 100 bucks a, a trade oh right? interesting but, you know like and, and look yeah. you know that's people, people have heard me say that and say oh you're just trying to pump the markets like yeah you're knuckleheads um <laughs> specifically because it, it you know it minimizes the chance so firstly you you, you get free in so you get in whatever, whatever you want it doesn't mean you can't pick bad companies but if you then want to sell and and you know get out then you've got to you know it really incentivizes people to hold longer term which we know statistically the longer you hold the better your returns tend to be um mm. not always and and you know there are downsides but if you're going to do or what you know even if it's you know whatever whatever combination something that, that incentivizes buying but disincentivizes selling for those reasons you know if you want to get out you know, and what you're trying to do you're trying to make people do a couple of things firstly think really carefully before buying do I really want to buy this? Is this really what I want to buy? Or am I doing it on a whim or because a mate said so or whatever? And if it hurts to buy, if there's some friction, as you said, you know, then that's going to stop you buying. That's really positive. Similarly on the sell. Oh, those shares are down 5% from when I bought them. Oh, I'm, not getting, I'm not making any money. I better sell them. Well, if you had to pay 100 bucks to do that, okay, I'm not very happy, but I'll keep the shares. Now, again, mm-hmm. if it's a crap company, you want to get out sooner. I get that. But if it's just a case of avoiding, as you say, the behavioral biases of I'm bored with it, it's going down, I'm stressed about it, I don't really know, uh, I want some action, I want some activity. Uh, think about pokies for anyone who's also thinking about pokies right now. Um, you know, those those things are, there's real, real, real value in that exact uh, outcome in being being incentivized not to trade too frequently. So I completely agree with you, mate. I think it's, I think it's exactly right. Um, oh, yeah. minimum, I mean, think... Go. Sorry, mate, I cut in. Uh, I, was, I was just going to say, I mean, think of the GameStop and the Robin Hood sort of saga <laughs> that, yep. that that went on there. And while it, anything that's free sounds great, but it's just it's always, I forget who said it originally, but if something's free, you're the product, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, the, the natural question here is, well, how do they, how does the 
broker offer free trade? So like, mm. what how what nice people they must be. Like, no. <laughs> That's right. They're selling your data, they're lending out your shares, they're doing other things again, perfectly legal, but let's 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 be real here. There is mm-hmm. they they are taking risk to generate a yield on yeah. on your funds or yeah. or or passing through information or giving other institutional grade investors uh, allowing them to skip the queue and there's all this raft of kinds of things that they can do. lend your shares out to, up to short sellers and again yeah. that's fine but just recognize that there there is there's is no such thing as a free lunch you, you are in some way at least paying and in some ways it's it's better to just pay a little bit of cash and not be exposed to some of that Mm. I, I completely agree. In terms of minimums, though, uh, I'm going to speak out of both sides of my mouth and almost to your point before, mate. Um, we want to keep below 1%, absolutely. But mm. with, a, with a particular caveat, which is I don't want people to let brokerage drive. You know, you know, we say don't, don't invest looking at tax. Look at the after-tax returns. When it comes to brokerage, I would say something similar, which is just be careful. Don't, don't, you know, it may be beneficial for you to pay more in brokerage to get, quickly get to 5, 10, or 15 companies. So that if one of them goes badly, you're not discouraged and you've got too much money in them. If you're saying, saving, like the question, five grand per trade, maybe it takes you all year to save five grand. Maybe it takes you a year and a half to save five grand. And then you buy one. And then for the next year and a half, you only got one stock. And maybe it's great. Maybe it's terrible. Maybe you get discouraged. Maybe you get put off. Maybe whatever. Um, I got to say, particularly if you're building early to get a decent sized portfolio, I'm just going to pick some numbers. I would say get to 12 or 15 companies as quickly as you reasonably can. And so if that means 500 bucks a go and you're paying $10 brokerage with Comsec, for example, do I love the brokerage percentage? No. Would I rather that than someone say, oh, wait, I got three grand per trade and buy two or three companies? Yes, absolutely. Because it gets you on the, the investing treadmill. It gets you started on the process much, much, much more quickly, minimizes the chance that one will go badly, gets you diversified as soon as possible, all that good stuff. So I would, I would just think about that. Um, the other thing, by the way, is the longer you take to invest statistically, the more mm. gains you're giving up because the market goes up on average 10% a year. So if you wait mm. if you wait a year to save 2%, but in the meantime, you've given up 10% to do it, well, you can do the maths with me on that one. So just think about that as well. Yep, nicely said. Mate, one last quick one from Henry who just says, Hey, Scotty, I've got a question I'd like you and Ram to get sidetracked on or muse over or rant about. I invested in a slightly <laughs> market-beating small cap called Silex Systems about six months ago, who are attempting to commercialize their uranium enrichment technology. Now, thankfully, he's not asking us about that because I know nothing about the company or uranium enrichment. But he says, one reason I invested is because they have no debt on their balance sheets and they appear appear to be fully funded by shareholder funding. Is this an absolute positive or is there downsides to this way of surviving a cash-burning operation? Would this affect their borrowing capacity in the future somehow? What do I need to think about? He says, thanks for any response and feel free to paraphrase. Love you, boys. Thanks for all the laughs. We love you too, Henry. Thank you, mate. Uh, really good question too. Sounds mm. like a pretty good positive, mate. They've got the cash on the balance sheet. They can fund their own operations. No need for anything else. Is that the absolute positive that Henry thinks it is or is there a catch? Oh, it's definitely positive. I mean, in all cases, uh, cash flow positive, profitable or not, it's it's. we've talked about it before. It's nice to have some cash there as a rainy day fund or as a... As a slush fund for slush fund's not the right word. As a, as a, <laughs> in, a, a fund to be used for a further in, a growth and the rest of it. What you what the calculus has to be though, and it, you know, by the way, it's certainly better than companies that are getting very close to zero and are still burning through cash. But you you've, <laughs> yeah, you've right. got to make sure that you, I mean, you're 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 playing a game of chicken, and at some mm-hmm. point they're either going to become self funding, which yeah. is great, or they're not. And uh, Silex is a good example here, not to know it particularly well, but. 
was 170 million shares a few years ago on issue. Now there's 205. Well, that's and they've lost money every year. In fact, they're not only lost money every year; they've never made any sales, as far as I can see. Every year. <laughs> now again, don't know anything about the company. Maybe this year they're going to make a billion dollars. Yeah. But but when you when you look back, you could see that you know several years ago there would have been a narrative at play. There would have been uh, a story to get bullish and, and optimistic on, and and maybe for very sensible reasons. But clearly they ran out of cash and they had to mm-hmm. raise. So yes. That's, that's, that fixed the problem at the time. But you don't want it to be too much of a recurring problem. And I've been trapped in companies who are just serial raisers and it just bleeds you dry. It, it's, it, it's a very frustrating experience. And when, <laughs> and when the business does sort of start delivering on some of your early expectations, you've, again, the dilution factor is just very real and it, it, mm. it's a much higher hill to climb. So Silex, good balance sheet, no debt, able to fund things for a while, great. The question is how long will it fund it yes, for? Yes, exactly. And and within that time frame, what do you, what do you think? Do you think that they will be able to pivot to a, a cash flow positive situation? If they can, and they can sustain that, you tend to see a bit of a re rate. In fact, because the market obviously values that, particularly at this point in time as well. So um, that's that's a very exciting time for investors as companies transition from an early R and D or exploratory phase or whatever it happens mm-hmm. to be, and then they hit the commercial phase. By the way, most of the business, like you know, proportional, proportionally speaking, most listed businesses are of that mold. You know, they they're unprofitable. They're startups. That's why they've come to the market. They're they're looking mm-hmm. to sort of raise some money, and we've got a great idea, a great product, a, a great service, and, and we, we we give us some money, and we're gonna we're gonna turn it into even more money for you. Um, just that again, most most don't not because they're evil, just because it's <laughs> it's very hard. That's yeah. that's your job. Can yeah. can they take what they've got, and can they can they can they start those plates spinning, and can they keep them spinning? And if if they can, you're laughing. Yeah, I mean, I, should, I, kinda, I shouldn't say you're laughing. You've you've crossed a big hurdle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're still yeah. alive. Yeah. I um I, I can't add much more, mate. I'll, I'll paraphrase and and repeat some of what you said and add a couple of things just quickly. Um, first thing, look, all things being equal, you'd rather have cash than not. So if yep. you're self-funded, that's great. You haven't got lenders who can call you to account. You haven't got an interest bill to pay. That means you've got more cash you can last for, and there's no one else on the on the on around the table who can who can make some calls. So you always want to be so you don't want to rely on the kindness of strangers to Warren Buffett's terms. Mm-hmm. Except that with the case of Silex and others, if you're cash flow negative, you're still racing against time. You're racing the red coin here. You've got to try and get to cash flow positive before you run out of money. Whether you're whether you're using debt or cash, you still got to do that. At some point they might try and borrow money or raise more equity or do something else. What you really care about is at some future time, how much money can they make and what is your share of that money? And whether they run out of cash in the meantime or get taken to administration by their, by their uh, you know, lenders, uh, both those are pretty ordinary outcomes. So they, if they 10x their share count, it's not that indistinguishable from going broke. If, you, if, your, if your dilution is, is one-tenth of what you ended up with versus losing 100%, I mean, sure, you'd rather have one than the other. But you know what I mean? There's, at, some point, at some point, the returns, the returns are, are, are reduced. Uh, so yes, cash is always better than debt. Uh, I can't imagine... The only scenario I can think of where debt would be better might be having had some lenders inside the business on the around the table so that if you do need money at some point, they know the business, you've got a relationship, you've... you've mm-hmm. not, not so much, not so much uh, credit borrowing capacity in the future as such henry but their ability to turn on the tap reasonably quickly for the right reasons having an established relationship with some banks that can be useful so that is that is a slight positive i don't think it's more positive than having the cash but in either case all that really matters is can they turn a profit or not in profit can they generate positive cash flow before they run out 
Yeah. Uh, and that, that as a shareholder is the number one question. How it's funded is is probably number two. I mean, just take it back to the, the corner store, the lemonade stand. Same yeah. thing. There's no business in the world that started making money on, on day one. There's, right. there's always some outlay that you have to make first. And there's only so, the pockets are only so deep. And that's the trick. Throw about a bunch of money and see if more comes back. Exactly. <laughs> Sometimes it takes a few goes, you know, and uh, before you get there. But it's, yeah, it's it's so obvious when you when you when you say it out loud. And it's not that people are silly for making the mistakes because some some strategies seem really sensible and the low risk and just but <laughs> the things don't always go your way and the environments can change very quickly. We've talked before about how Tesla may not be the company it was if the market sentiment had turned sooner on technology yes. stocks. Yep. You know, so so it's just it's a risk to very much be aware of and definitely you can sleep better when there's a good strong balance sheet there. Just just make sure that things are on track. Mm, I like it. Mate, I reckon that's probably us for today. Gosh, that's you, a uh, relatively short one for us too. Well, we do what we can. I've got plenty of yeah. other questions just quietly, but I'll, I'll give you an early mark. Uh, mate, will you join me next Friday and we'll do another podcast? Oh, you know I will. Absolutely. Good man. Good man. I will share with you the socials next week, but you know them. You know what they are. Come and join us on Twitter. Send us an email or hit us up on Facebook. Until then, full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.